Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. You know, it wasn't planned this way, but I don't think it's a coincidence that we're launching into Romans during our 40-day period of praying and fasting. It was months ago when I put Romans on the schedule for the worship team to start this week, and I had no idea whether it would be right even to do a period of 40 days in prayer and fasting, much less when, much less I had no idea uh, what the elders would be doing last Sunday. We didn't plan that until a a few weeks ago. I actually decided to do Romans because in a lot of ways it's the core of who we are as a church. Like it says on our website, we are gospel-centered, and everything else flows out of that. Out of that, we're worship-driven, as it says, community-minded and missionally focused. But under that, we're gospel-centered, and the book of Romans is the epistle of the gospel. If there's any book that will get us back to our uh, roots as a congregation, it's this one, which is why I chose it. But here we are now, seeking God's guidance and a posture of repentance, starting with our elders confessing for the sake of a new beginning. And here we are launching into a book that's all about new beginnings. The new beginnings that the gospel uh, makes possible again and again, not only when we come to Christ, but as we grow in Christ. It's about going from repentance to revival, from ruin to revolution, from saying like Isaiah did, woe to me for I am ruined, to saying as he did in the same chapter, Isaiah 6, here am I, send me. And so here we are in the book of Romans, out of all the script books in Scripture, if you need a new beginning, if you need to, to go from ruin to revolution, from repentance to revival, whether personally or congregationally, this is the book for you. If we're seeking God's guidance in a posture of repentance, as we happen to be doing right now, for the sake of His deliverance and His abundance, this is the book for us. Again and again, down through the centuries, uh, the book of Romans has started spiritual revolutions among those who were in ruin. F.F. Bruce, the great evangelical scholar, put it this way. Time and again in the course of Christian history, the book of Romans has liberated the minds of men, brought them back to an understanding of the essential gospel of Christ, and started spiritual revolutions. It started a revolution in Augustine's life. He became a Christian as he read Romans 13, 13, and 14 of all verses. He said, no further would I read, nor I had any need to read further. Instantly, at the end of those verses, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Just two verses from the book of Romans. This man is now universally acknowledged as one of the most influential theologians in the history of the church who went on to start a spiritual revolution through his writings that's continued to this day. Luther converted to the faith as he was delivering a series of lectures in a seminary, though he wasn't a believer yet, on guess which book? Yeah, the book of Romans. It was Romans 1.17 that did it where it says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
The word revealed here is apocalypsis in the Greek, from which we get the word, of course, apocalypse. And what it means is this. When we come to him in repentance, by faith, there can be like an apocalypse of God's deliverance. Of God's righteousness, of God's abundance. Just like there was for Luther, just as there was for Augustine. And when, as he said, a clear light, an apocalypse of light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Luther said for the first time ever, he understood, he understood in this passage of Paul, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, became to me a gateway into heaven. Luther went on to write a commentary on the book of Romans. And a hundred years later, John Wesley was born again reading that commentary on Romans. He said, my heart, famous words, was strangely warmed and I trusted in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And out of Wesley and Good Park came the second great awakening to America. Came the apocalypse of the second great awakening thanks to the book of Romans. It's no wonder that Frederick Godet wrote this in a classic commentary on Romans. He said, the probability is that every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as an effect is connected to a cause with a deeper understanding of this book. If ever there was a time for an apocalypse of light in our darkness, that time is now. In many ways, the book of Romans is all wrapped up in that one word, apocalypse. And, and in particular, it's wrapped up in the phrase, saints in light. In an apocalypse of light. Shining on their darkness and then shining through them. Saints in light. That's at the heart of Paul's introduction to this book in Romans 1 to 7. Romans 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In these first verses, what we have is really the history of the gospel that makes a new beginning possible. And then in verses 5 to 7, we're going to see really the mystery of the gospel that fuels that beginning. First, the history. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What we have here is really his apostolic devotion, verse 1. He calls himself a bondservant. He calls himself a slave who was set apart for one thing, for the gospel of God. That's devotion. Which means that he had a single-minded intensity for the gospel. This is the apostolic devotion that went on to turn the world upside down, to start a revolution, thanks to the gospel. And that can do it again, because we too are bondservants. We're going to see as we move through this book. We are called, and this book will set us apart too, perhaps as never before, to go with the gospel of God, like Paul did. And just what is the gospel that stirred up such, you know, this apostolic devotion Uh, down through history? Well, in many ways, it's all in one single word here in verse 1, the word gospel. We'll unpack that in the months to come, but in broad brushstrokes, the gospel, of course, in the Greek is euangelion, which means means good news. It means good news in the light of bad news. 
The gospel is all about our, his light in our darkness, about man's uh, depravity on one hand, that's chapters one to three, and God's mercy uh, on the other. It's about our total depravity and God's unbelievable, unconditional mercy, the mercy that came through the cross of Calvary for no other reason than his love and his glory. The gospel of Jesus Christ is based on unbelievably bad news and like impossibly good news. It's all about a a metamorphosis of the bad into the good that is now the cycle of our lives. Nothing is wasted. After the pattern of the cross, as he takes us from death to life again and again. It's the good news of God's saving love. G.K. Chesterton, and I love this, called it impossible good news that makes everything else seem trivial. It's like a song that's been going around in my head all week. You might say the net effect of the gospel is something like the uh, signature song of the man of La Mancha. (laughs) Do you remember him? In fact, that whole story is a gospel story, as we'll see. Remember the Broadway musical, Man of La Mancha? Probably dates me, but most of you probably do. Even if you've not seen it, you may remember this song, to to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbearable, the unbeatable foe, to bear the unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go. This is my quest, to follow that star. A good part of that impossible good news that makes everything else seem trivial is that we are now on a quest of the risen sun. We're we're following that star to to be like him in glory, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ, as Paul said. This awesome being, as we saw in Revelation 1, this man-shaped entity, this everlasting type of what we were meant to be who came to dwell among the miserable shadows of who we are. This is now our quest, to follow that star. And it's not only a possibility, it is our destiny. As through hell and high water, through discord and division, through earth, wind, and fire, as they say, through the sound and the fury of life under the sun, that's where we're headed, to shine like the sun uh, forever and ever after 10,000 years. And we don't have to wait till glory for that to happen. It happens again and again to all who comes, come to him once they're saved to be saved from the power of sin and from all the stuff that goes on in life. It happens to all those who uh, come to him in a posture of repentance and that is death to life. Repentance to revival. Ruin to revolution. The gospel is an impossible dream come true in the power of the risen Lord to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear the unbearable sorrow, and God knows it feels that way sometimes, to run where the brave dare not go. God, I can only do this if you help me move forward as we follow that star. (laughs) No wonder it fueled such apostolic devotion. But second, in addition to Paul's devotion, 
In the history of the gospel, we see an ancient desire, point B in your notes. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, verse 1, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, that's devotion. Then moving on to verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We could spend a whole sermon on this, but overall, it was a promise that created, that was long delayed, that created a pent-up desire. It had been a long time coming. As it says in 1 Peter 1.10, the prophets of old made careful search and inquiry into these things, which now have been announced to you through those, uh, through those who preach the gospel to you, things into which the angels longed to look and saints longed for with all their hearts. It's the ancient longing of a deep desire that in good part fueled Paul's apostolic devotion. It was a desire, as we all know, for the promised Messiah who had uh, been so long in coming and for the salvation he would bring. And just as God stirred up a desire for his coming with the people of God all through the centuries, he, he stirred it up in this congregation. Through all your afflictions, it's just his way. It's like Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Can you relate? But that's his plan or we'll take the solution for granted. Desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And the principle here is that God defers our hope to kindle our desire. He waits until we say, how long, O Lord, four hardest words in Scripture. Over and again he does this. He waits until it feels like an ancient desire. Through many a long night, just as he's done here, so we will seize the day with apostolic devotion when it comes. So an ancient desire preceded the gospel. And not surprisingly, apostolic devotion proceeded from it. From what? Well, from an awesome drama. Point C in your notes. From the awesome drama that is the, at the nuclear a core of gospel history. It's a saga of epic proportions with this hero whose who's stature like rivals all the other heroes in human history combined. Because it's the gospel, it says in verse 3, concerning his son, that's the hero, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, that is, he was in the flesh, he was a real man, and declared to be the son of God. That is, he was God too. He was declared, better translation is, he was demonstrated to be the son of God by the power of the resurrection from the dead. The ultimate proof that he wasn't just a man is that God raised him from the dead. And the proof that, it's the same proof with his body, that we're not just a social club, but the body of Christ is that God will raise us too. By the same power that raised him. It's the gospel story that cycles through our lives individually and congregationally to those who come in a posture of repentance. And it's according to the spirit of holiness that he was raised, it said. He overcame death by the power of the spirit. 
But it wasn't just through his death and resurrection that God proved that he was the son. He overcame in life by the same spirit of holiness. Through all the ups and downs of his own life where he let out many cryings and loud tears and sorrows and expressions of difficulty. Through all of that, through all those ups and downs, he lived a holy life by the spirit of holiness. Which also proved that he was God, Jesus Christ our Lord. It was an ancient drama that took place 2,000 years ago. We can take it for granted, but truly it was an awesome drama. So deep, but so profoundly simple. You might say it was like this two-act play, from, or three-act play, life, death, life, with a single player and one hero and a cross and an empty tomb and a place that became ground zero, that became Ground zero, the cross of Calvary for a nuclear reaction that's changing the world to this day. An awesome drama that we're going to see we are now part of. So in the first four verses, we have the history of the gospel, Roman numeral one in your notes. And then in verses five to seven, we see what really is the mystery of the gospel. Because in verse 5 it says, It's the gospel concerning the hero of the story, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom, Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Paul says here that he's received grace, which means he's got a gift, and apostleship, which means he's got this unique calling to bring about the obedience of faith. Why would Paul put that at the very top? of the book. The obedience of faith. The whole point of all that history, it seems, was to make possible this multifaceted mystery, and the first part of that mystery, a huge part of it, is our obedience, which Paul calls the obedience of faith. That's the goal. So what's so mysterious about that? Notice how he puts it. The obedience, the goal of it all, is not the obedience of works, but the obedience of what? It's the kind of obedience that comes by faith in him and not in ourselves. Not only when we come to him for salvation, but when we grow in him. It's a holiness that comes by his energy, not just by our own efforts. It's a mystery. It's a goodness that comes by by this live contact with the same spirit of holiness that was in him that's now in us and that we now have too. And so Paul says in Philippians 2, here's the mystery. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's our part. What's God's part for it is God who's in a work within you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. And this book shows us how this mystery works in practice. It's a powerful thing through this gateway to this apocalypse of his working through us, through the obedience of faith, as we simply believe and receive all through the Christian life. It's like breathing. So it's a mystery that happens through our response, point A in your notes. And it's also a mystery of God's reach, point B. Paul says here, to bring about the obedience of faith, verse 5, among all the Gentiles. It's for all who will come. It's not just for the Jews that they thought God loved exclusively. This was real news back then. They couldn't believe it was for the Gentiles who they called dogs. It's a mystery for those Jews to think, how could God do that? 
And it's a mystery for those who know they don't deserve it. In a posture of repentance. Which means it doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter how great your ruin is. He can bring about a revolution. The greater the ruin, the better the news because the greater the revolution. His deliverance and his abundance comes through uh, our repentance. You know, the man of La Mancha was the very picture of this when he reached out to, remember the story, Aldanza, and dreamed the impossible dream for her. Aldanza was her name. She served the drunken camel drivers by day. She was a waitress by day and a prostitute by night. And then uh, he came into her life. He comes to her out of the blue and takes one look at her and he says, my lady. And she says, lady. And he says, yes, you are my lady and I shall give you a new name. I shall call you Dulcinea. You are my lady. You are my lady, Dulcinea. He keeps saying this whenever he sees her to her complete bewilderment to the point that she says, I know men, what do you want from me? Later there's a horrible scene backstage. You hear screams and she's being assaulted in the worst possible way and then she runs onto the stage. She's crying, she's hysterical, she's disheveled, she's dirty and he sees her and he says, my lady Dulcinea, oh my lady, my lady. And she can't stand it anymore. And she says, don't call me a lady. Oh God, don't call me that. Can't you see me for what I am? I was born in a ditch by a mother who left me there naked and cold, squirming in my blood, too weak to cry. She left me there hoping I'd have the good sense to die. I reek with sweat. Men use me and forget me. Don't call me your lady. I am only Aldanza. I am nothing at all. I'd call that a posture of repentance. A posture of repentance. And she runs into the night and he calls after her, but you are my lady. And the curtain drops. It's the mystery of God's love for which, which is for the dogs too, for all the Gentiles. A mystery which Paul now takes deeper in verse six, point C in your notes, one that's all about our identity. He called Aldanza his lady, though she was far from it, just as God calls us saints, though we are far from it. Reading on now, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, that's a mystery, but nothing like what's coming, among whom you are also called of Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? To all who are beloved of God in Rome, who are not worthy of love, called as saints. The word as is not in the original. It just says in the Greek, it says called saints. So he's not just comparing by using a simile, you know, by calling, uh, the, uh, by using the word as. He's saying that's what we are. Call, and you're thinking, called saints? Me? I'm just Aldanza. You're calling me a saint. 
Oh yes, it's the mystery of the gospel that we are beloved of God, called saints. Which means this. It means that he sees us now as he sees Christ, of course. It's like Spurgeon prayed in the prayer of confession for day 13 of our 40 days, which is today, and I didn't plan it that way. (laughs) What did he pray? He said, the brightness of his glory. Thank you, Father, that the brightness of his glory, the brightness of the glory of Christ covers all our shame. That we are called saints means that he sees us now as he sees Christ. And it means that he loves us now, and get this, as though we already are what we will one day be. That we are called saints means he sees us now as he sees Christ, and he loves us now as though we already are what we will one day be in Christ. It means that this is who we are in the light of his eyes as he looks at us. And it means that this is what we are becoming in the light of his glory. His lady Dulcinea. In the ESV, the has the better translation here, which says, not called of Jesus Christ, but rather uh, it says, you are, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ, which is the image of a, of a marriage that we find all through Scripture. And what that means is this, that we are called to become like Him so that we can belong to Him as His, his lady in glory, a star-celled beauty, as we've seen in Revelation 21, clothed in a celestial city, a majestic beauty for the second person of the Trinity. How crazy is that? Amazing love. How can it be? You know, the man of La Mancha's love for Aldonza was crazy too. Totally crazy. If you just looked at who she was. But not if you looked at what she became. Picking it up where we left off. Don't call me your lady. I am only Aldonza. I am nothing at all. Runs away. But you are my lady. Curtain drops. And then... It rises again, and it's years later, and the man of La Mancha now lies dying of a broken heart, and to his deathbed comes a Spanish queen, and she's got this mantilla of lace gently draped across her shoulders, and she kneels before him, and she makes the sign of the cross, and she prays, and at that, he opens his eyes, and he says, Who are you? And she replies, My Lord, don't you remember? You sang a song. Don't you remember? To dream the impossible dream. To fight the unbeatable foe. To bear the unbearable sorrow. To run where the brave dare not go. My Lord, don't you remember? You gave me a new name. You called me Dulcinea. And she stands proudly and says, I am your lady. It 
is the mystery of God's saving love. It's made possible by the history of God's saving love through the gospel of his son. Out of that love, the son of man became the man of La Mancha to raise up a Spanish queen from those who he calls saints to this day. From the likes of you and me. Paul concludes this rich introduction, this rich seven-verse introduction to the book of Romans with really an invocation with what's truly the blessing of the gospel, the gospel blessing that he begins each of his letters with, in fact. It's verse 7, point D in your notes. Grace to you, he says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all grace. And if grace is the cause then peace is the effect. Peace is the effect in the heart for those who know they're nothing at all in a posture of repentance in the light of his forgiveness and of his loving kindness. And grace can be the cause and peace can be the effect not just in the heart but in the church. There can be peace and a whole new beginning for those who extend the grace that they've received, even to those who consider they consider to be aldanzas. Through the gospel of grace that brings peace, he has done it again and again down through the history of revival. He has done it in those who fulfill the condition in and through those who know their need and say, woe unto us, for we are ruined. Just as Session did last week. And just as many of you are doing right now. Just look at those sign-up sheets out there. They're full many times over. I've never seen anything like it. He's done it before. And he can do it again after the gospel pattern of repentance to revival, of ruin to revolution. Amen. Father, I pray for anyone here today who, whose, whose life is in ruins, who know they are nothing. I pray that they would repent of their sin, and turn from it and believe that Christ died for their sin, that they would turn to Christ and receive his spirit into their, their ruined hearts to make a revolution of their lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.